Welcome back to Everything Just Changed. I'm Bryce Hales, and I am here with my friend Brad Edwards, as always. And we are seeking to help you navigate faithfulness to Jesus in a post-Christian and post-pandemic world. And we are unpacking really the meaning of the world right now, Brad. We are we are talking about <laughs> what is going on in this cultural moment that we are living through, uh, where a pandemic has sparked conspiracy theories and polarization, and then racial injustice uh, was like adding fuel to that fire. And the world is just melting down all around us. <laughs> and we have been exploring uh, what's really at the root of this, which, you know, our thesis is essentially that instead of the idea that we often hear that there is a right and a left, there is secularism and there is religious conservatism. What, 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 what has happened in our culture is that actually individualism has infected both sides of the spectrum and they both tend towards fundamentalism. And we are proposing a solution covenantalism. It's a biblical word. It's a great word. It's a, it's a word that is not familiar um, to most of us. I grew up in the church. Brad, you went to a seminary called Covenant Seminary. Mm-hmm. And I had never heard the word until uh, applying to Covenant Seminary. Most so. Christians even have no idea what the word covenant means. And so we're taking a risk by even talking about covenantalism because nobody knows what it means. And so over the, the in, in our last episode, we, we tried to unpack that a little bit where we talked about, uh, go, went back to Genesis 12, God coming to Abram and saying, I'm going to bless you, but through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you my people. You will be blessed to be a blessing. It's a covenant. A covenant is, is uh, it's more relational than a contract, but it is a binding agreement and is the way that God pledges himself to his people. It's a beautiful concept, and that's that's what the Bible proposes to us, um, and that's what we see as the solution to this insane world that we are living in right now, where everybody's screaming at each other, and everybody's convinced it's the other side's fault. Yeah, and I think what's really important to, to note about that, too, is like, this is not a silver bullet. Uh, I wish it were, because we're, we're, we're all over this. Um, we're all done with this, and... Uh, but in order to really talk about covenant, like what in the world does that mean? How is that a contrast to what maybe you're familiar with, with evangelicalism? Uh, how do we understand that? And like, how is that actually a solution to the things that we've been talking about and exploring? We have to kind of go back to, okay, so what is, if we've been talking about the fruit or the lack of fruit that American white evangelicalism has been or has not been bearing, what is the root of that? Why is that the case? Like, is there is is there a a maybe not a silver bullet solution but a silver bullet problem that we can point to that says this is the thing that we uh that we can diagnose as the the thing that is is compromised by individualism yeah or maybe even another way to ask that question is okay what's really wrong with individualism <laughs> right i mean we've sort of taken that for granted and i think we're what we want to do today is step back and and kind of unpack is is does scripture provide a corrective against individualism and if so how have we missed that why have we missed that where is it yeah i think that last question is the, is, is the easiest one to jump in on too is is why have we missed it or how have we missed that right it's it's a little bit to answer that question is a little bit like a a fish swimming around in water and then having an older fish come up to you and say hey how uh how's the water boys and and they just look at him and like what water uh because it's just how do you describe the thing that you've only ever known your entire life yeah um 
And that is not just outside the church. We're talking about inside the church too. This is, I, I was actually talking to somebody uh, recently who was responding to the article I wrote for Mere Orthodoxy. And uh, I, I so appreciated this guy, his name's Jeff. And he, I, I was asking him, so like, what about it like really hit you? Like what about it was really helpful? And his answer, the content of which was, was kind of irrelevant, but his starting point was actually in church history. Because part of the, the one of the symptoms of individualism is thinking that history starts with us, or at least, you know, whenever we created our Facebook profile, um, that there isn't this context that we have been part of and shaped by for decades and even centuries. And if I had to like kind of pinpoint a, a spot in church history where individualism kind of reached a, a religious height in 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 our country, in America, at least, uh, that would be the second great awakening. And especially because of a guy named Charles Finney. Yeah. Charles Finney, you know, you mentioned Charles Finney and two Presbyterian pastors are going to get pretty worked up. Because, <laughs> uh, Char- well, not worked up. <laughs> well, worked up in our animosity towards Charles Finney. Um, <laughs> yeah. Charles Finney is, is sort of the central figure in the second great awakening. Um, this is, uh, just for context, Charles Finney died in 1875. So this is sort of um, mid 19th century. And uh, this is the time where, especially in upstate New York, an area that becomes to be known as the burned over district, where new religious movements are continually cropping up. And uh, Charles Finney, you know, is, is a uh, Christian minister, Presbyterian minister, but he is rejecting um, what he sees as a traditionalism and um, an idea that that religion is just sort of about showing up and going through the motions, that it's about institutionalism. And he invents what comes to be called uh, the new measures, uh, new measures. And so things like the anxious bench, the uh, the altar call, I think was a, a Charles Finney um invention but really what what he's known for is this idea that religion or christianity is driven by emotionalism and so uh, what we need to do as as pastors what the church needs to do is just get people really excited and capitalize on that emotional fervor in order to draw them to christ uh there's a there's a um there's a quote, I'm going to butcher it, I can't find it exactly, but but Finney essentially said we have to continually invent new things to excite people about, to keep them excited about Jesus. Totally new concept, but what it, what it leads to is this movement away from the institution of the church, the church as both organism and institution, and leads to what we all sort of take as common sense now, which is that uh, Christianity or religion in general is sort of operates on the gut level. Uh, it's just about me and God. I have a, I have a direct shot to him and nobody else needs to get involved in my personal relationship with Jesus. Absolutely. And it bears worth saying that, you know, authentic emotional expression and celebration, and this is coming from two Presbyterians again, uh, celebration is a good thing. Yes. We could learn a lot from this. Finney's uh, problematic approach 
was making emotional excitement primary and the only, basically the the the, the only fruit of the spirit. You know, yeah, not as, that as often the case. His diagnosis wasn't wrong; it was just the prescription that was toxic. You might say he threw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, right. He was like the first anti-institutionalist, right? Um, but the this that that those kinds of roots, and it, it, he, you know, he wasn't the first one. Um, but he's probably the most uh, hyperbolic in a lot of ways. But that stream of Christianity is very much its descendants are modern evangelicalism and uh, and generally, yes, fundamentalism. But there's some other, you know, genealogy there that we could talk about, but that's yeah. too much. Um, the point of this is, is uh, basically you all should go buy the book Strange Rights. Uh, by Tara Isabella Burton, um, because she notes and and talks about how America's religions and especially evangelical Christianity has this root that Bryce is describing that he, she sums up as intuitionist. In other words, rather than finding our community, ritual, meaning, and purpose all within the same walls of a single institution, the institutional church, we have this kind of individualist bent that she calls intuitionism that seeks to pick and choose where we derive our identity or our community ritual meaning and purpose from different sources and then kind of cobble them all together. That's always been a bent among Americans in general. Never mind, you know, we're not we're just trying to beat up on Christians here. That's that's an that's like the American pastime, right? Is 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 making your own social or religious identity via buffet, right? That's our thing. Um, What, what is problematic about that is like, that was never fully enabled until the dot-com revolution and then social media in the early 2000s. And then in particular in 2010, when the tipping point was really reached with the iPhone and the smartphone in general being like, it follows you everywhere. And the ubiquity of the smartphone. I mean, I remember I mean, I didn't have the first generation iPhone, um, but now it's Looking hard to find that. who who's got, who's an adult that doesn't have a smartphone on them at all times. Who's a teenager that doesn't have a smartphone on them? Well, at that's all times? A, that's another matter. Well, that's yeah, that's yeah, that's topic. a different podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so and so what it, what has happened um, subtly at first over the last 150 years, but now has accelerated like crazy in the last 10 is that. Uh, discipleship is now a purely individualistic experience. And so, okay, we got to talk about discipleship, but we've got to probably define our terms here because discipleship clearly is a biblical New Testament concept, which means apprenticeship to Jesus. It means attaching ourselves uh, not just to Jesus, but to his church and being shaped and formed uh, by Jesus through the power of the people of Jesus, through the power, through the community of the church. I don't know what the time period is on this, but certainly in my lifetime, evangelicals have thought of discipleship as just about learning intellectual like information. Um, And so we think of a mature Christian as somebody who is a person who's willing to pray out loud and a person who knows a lot of Bible verses. And, you know, if you just drop like Isaiah six. Oh yeah, I know what Isaiah six is. A job, you know. I know a lot of Bible verses, so I'm a mature Christian. We've separated discipleship from a way of life. Well, and if you have the right, you have basically two uh, halves or two sides of the coin of of the American church. That one was extremely emotional 
you know, embraced Charles Finney's emotionalism. Um, and the other one was very institutional. And the the descendants of that of those two kind of movements or streams very quickly, like in the 70s and 80s, uh, became like the Jesus movement um, as a, a more intuitionist, uh, experiential faith and discipleship that to their, to its credit was extremely active. Mm-hmm. Um, however, it was very much very individualized. And then you have an, an institutional stream that, as Bryce, you're describing, limited or or reduced discipleship to the acquiring of information. And so you have these kind of this tension between these two tribes within evangelicalism in a lot of ways. But what they have in common, what they absolutely have in common is a an intuitionism that says, I'm going to approach uh my spiritual growth as a buffet of which church is just one thing I put on the tray, as opposed to the tray being the church on which everything else is, is ordered and makes sense and relates to each other. Yeah, absolutely. What I think is happening now is that because, because discipleship has been reduced to an individualistic experience, uh, that's not a sufficient, we, we have to be formed and shaped by something. We are creatures who don't just go out into the world as blank slates. We go out in in ways that we have been formed by family, by church, by neighborhood, by community, but by ideas. And then we are continually shaped as we as we experience, as we live. We cannot live as we cannot live like undiscipled lives, but discipleship has become such an individualistic thing that just because we're not being discipled by the church into the way of Jesus doesn't mean we're not being discipled. And so we're seeing this play out, again, in secular ways and in evangelical ways. And they're they're very predictable. Well, right. Yeah, because the, the functional purpose of the church then under this kind of personal individual salvation schema, the, the purpose of the church is just to help you along in your walk, yeah. right? That's not... That's not biblical. W- no, that's actually... That's Walmart, Right. Customer service is a department store or a mall. Yeah. It's that is actually that has nothing. Yeah. The, the church of, has been reduced to a provider of religious goods and services. Absolutely. And so it's no wonder, one, there's frustration with the church among people because their expectations, regardless of whether they're biblical expectations or not, are being chronically disappointed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's also part of what incentivizes a mega church growth model being seen as ideal or the definition of success, because it's the only way you can provide those kinds of good spiritual goods and services is if you have enough critical mass and financial resources. It it doesn't actually fit the narrative description in scripture that calls God's people corporately as a whole, as a singular whole of communally organized and connected individuals to be God's very redemptive presence in the world. The church then is not to help you along with your walk in Christ. It is actually the means by which you walk and follow Jesus into the world. It's, it's, we have it so backwards. Yeah. And so, and so what's happened is absent, you know, biblical covenantal discipleship, we're still being discipled. We're just being discipled individualistically and we're being discipled by social media and we're being discipled by cable news um, by talk radio. And, you know, the reality is those messages have a formative effect on, on our lives. 
so here covenantalism, right? Here's theologically, this is what we're describing, and this is what this means is when we're saved individually, are we saved as individuals or are we become do we become members of a church? I'm talking about universally speaking, in the invisible church, not like going through membership class. I'm saying like which happens first? You being saved or you being coming part of the church? Yes. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you, Bryce. <laughs> right? You cannot separate the two. And when you do, when our inclusion in the bride of Christ, which is the vehicle for Jesus's redemption of his people, is his cov- as, as the covenant head of, of the church, if you separate that as if in a, in a corporeal or physical embodied connection to a local church is in any way optional, you have you have not followed biblical Christianity, but an intuitionism that says I'm going to cobble together my spiritual identity from wherever I find it. And in an age of cable media and social media and and talk radio, man, it's no wonder evangelicalism has gotten off track. Yeah, and 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 then a global pandemic comes along <laughs> that yeah. prevents. Christians from gathering together for three to six or more months in many cases. And what happens is instead of the church doing some remedial discipleship work to people who are being functionally discipled by social media, the the gathered church is simply absent from their lives at all. And so what has kind of been the de facto discipling identity formation thing in their lives just begins to fully take over. And so whether that's, you know, a sort of lean, a bent towards secularism or a bent towards conservatism, evangelicalism, the gloves have come off. And that's where where we are now, where everybody, you know, is yelling at each other. And and everything is interesting. You know, um, uh, Tim Keller had a great article on um, biblical justice on that uh, he published a few weeks ago. And how biblical justice is different than just kind of wokeness or Marxism or critical race theory. And I saw a friend on social media commenting on this. And and what he said was, it's clear that Tim Keller is coming at this from a progressive standpoint. But it's really important to understand, for conservatives to understand how a progressive-leaning Christian kind of gets at this topic. And I, I just thought, man, first of all, to describe Tim Keller as a progressive leaning Christian <laughs> is, is such a like failure to understand theological categories. Mm-hmm. But tragically, what, what my friend was doing is, is he's assuming the dichotomy between left and right as sort of the primary ways of understanding the world. And then he is evaluating Christianity or expressions of Christianity in light of how politically, how, how, how theologically conservative or liberal they are. And so what's happened is he's been shaped by social media, cable news, talk radio, all this kind of stuff to view the world as either liberal or conservative. And then he filters expressions of biblical Christianity through that grid. Right. Yeah. And here, dude, yes. Cause there are, there are two, just massive implications of what you're talking about, right? 
the first is we need to remember, like we've been using the word institution without doing a whole lot of defining or qualifying what we mean by that. But a lot of people may be hearing this word as this kind of stuffy rote or, you know, at best kind of organization right. uh, that is like less spiritual because it has structure to it. Um, congratulations. That is an individualist lens that you're hearing this through. You've been shaped by that. Um, also, uh, when we are talking about and using the language of institutions, this is why uh, Tara Isabella Burton's book, Strange Rights, is so helpful. Because when we have become discipled by this hodgepodge or buffet selection of different areas where we're kind of piecemealing and getting our, our community ritual meaning and purpose from different sources, we're going to hear it through the collective lens of, the, of, of whatever identity we've built that through. And so what we need to remember and realize is the institutions where you're going to get all four of those things under the same roof, what we're talking about is an organizational and organic liturgy, a, a, a submission to a greater thing, a, a, a community, a way of doing things, a mission, a purpose, and a narrative yeah. that is bigger than your own such yeah. that your own story, your own identity is given exponentially more value and and meaning purpose community and ritual than you could ever find on your own yeah a story that is told that shapes your life but also through a togetherness and the enactment of ritual which again is not a word that most americans see as a good word and yet you know what like meaning is conveyed through ritual if you see a woman in a white dress standing up with a man in a black suit and they've each got three people behind them dressed similarly. You know something really important is happening in that moment. Guess what? That's a ritual, right? Absolutely. And covenant in exactly. context of scripture, which a, a covenant, the closest you know covenant we have is marriage in the, in, in the exchange of mutual vows, right? Covenants build on one another. It's not done in isolation that God says, because he says every each time, because of my covenant with your forefather, Abraham, mm -hmm. I will be faithful to you. They had no, they didn't choose Jesus. They didn't burn their secular CDs at a bonfire ritual in the middle of Missouri. I <laughs> speak well, auto, autobiographically here. No, 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 no. I'm, I, um, I, I grew up outside of the church. I married into that. No, um, no, what I'm saying, <laughs> no, it didn't happen. Because your family started with the presumption of fall and the creation, fall, redemption, restoration narrative that is scripture from Genesis to Revelation, but started with redemption because God worked in and through your forefathers and works in and through the generations of God's people to redeem, mm -hmm. right? Let me give you another, I'll give you a very personal example. My last name, Edwards, is, is not just a cool like cocktail party oh you're related to jonathan edwards i actually am like ninth generation directly descended my grandfather did a genealogy it's a long story i didn't know that but yeah, th there you go wow uh well there's this really cool news article from the 30s that says and uh from jonathan edwards uh diaries that he uh prayed for his family seven generations deep my dad is the first one that I know of from the genealogy my grandfather did that is not a Christian. Wow. And I became a Christian in a non-Christian home and then go to find out after I start at seminary, making a joke with my dad that there's a hall named after our family, Edwards Hall. And he's like, 
oh yeah, he's probably that, you know, that, um, smoking limestone preacher. I'm like, you mean fire, fire and brimstone? brimstone fire? No, no, you can't. No. Are you serious? He would go into the garage, pulls out a picture of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards, one each. And, and then hands me a book that I had no idea. I'm in my like early twenties, had no idea that this was the case. And then find out like of the generations between my dad, between me and Jonathan Edwards, my dad and maybe my grandfather, the only ones who are not Christian and half of them were pastors. And I didn't find this out until after I started seminary. That's covenant. That's narrative. Mm. That's God working in and through not just us as individuals and not just us as a community in the present tense, but in the past and future tense as well. Mm. From generation to generation. From generation to generation. You are not an island. Yeah. You are one of many sands, one, one of many grains of sand in the sea and one of many stars in the sky that God promised your forefather, Abraham, he would make a spiritual lineage from. I got goosebumps just talking about this because do you think, do you think that might make a difference and be a potent received identity for us to hang our head on and to anchor our souls in, in the midst of all this chaos? Hmm. Yeah. It's not all up to us. We're not making it all up as we go. Everything does not depend on, you know, the, the, the magnitude of my successes and avoiding the depths of my failures. Mm. Yeah. So what? That's really cool, Brad. My last name isn't Edwards. Um, what, so that's a theological concept. Here's what it means in the concrete. The ev- evangelical movements sawing off of the branch we've been standing on that is the institutional church is how we got here. Yeah. In many ways, the, you know, the Puritans that came over on the Mayflower and landed at Plymouth Rock were rightly fearing and fleeing persecution. And we didn't build institutions. Or we tried to. I, actually, I should take that back because like Princeton was an, you know, originally a Christian institution, but we've gotten away from that. And the individualistic culture that we are swimming in has start has over generations has has become this thing this this toxic virus that is leading all of these symptoms to come out. Yeah. So I, I feel like this is the moment where we need to do the the qualifier thing, which is to say, it, okay, if you're envisioning if, like let's return to the Middle Ages where uh, nobody can read the Bible for themselves and they just show up at church on Sunday morning, because that's what you're supposed to do. And you go through the motions and you say the words that you don't understand. Like, no, that's not, we're not advocating in uh, institutionalism as the replacement for individualism. We're simply saying the, the pendulum has swung so far in the other direction. The baby's th- been thrown out with the bathwater. And now what's happening is evangelicals are wringing our hands over why is everybody leaving the church when we're not actually sure, evangelicals aren't actually sure they believe in the church. The solution has got to be, well, the solution's covenantalism, right? The, the- the, yeah, theologically it is. But what, how that plays out, right, is, is an investment into the institutional church yeah. such that it is not, right? Non-denominationalism is a, it was a movement that, like, can we just be honest? Can we just say non-denominational means Baptist, right? <laughs> it's 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 okay. It's okay if you're listening. That's completely fine. Uh, I did a church planning residency at a non-denominational church 
we're good. I, I love you all. We all, we love you all. Um, what I'm trying to say here is, um, we, we have a bad history of going with the grain instead of against the grain of individualism. And by reducing over time, the importance of the institutional church, we're basically discipling people out of the church. Yeah. Yeah. And we have to be able to cast a vision for this that no, isn't necessarily a, a, uh, you know, a Catholic hierarchy. That's not, we don't want to swing the pendulum so far in the other direction. However, it's really clear that there are, there's a lot of longing for that kind of thing, both within evangelicalism and within secularism. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, fascinating article. I just came out, uh, came across this this morning that, uh, this will be a couple weeks old by the time you're listening to this, but Mark Galley, who, um, just retired in January, I think as the editor of Christianity Today. So Christianity Today is like the headline magazine of evangelicalism, right? Founded by Billy Graham. Whatever evangelicalism is, is expressed by Christianity Today. So he's like at the head. You understand what I'm saying? He's at the head of evangelicalism. (laughs) That's the point I'm trying to make here. Article comes out today that is revealing that Mark Galley this Sunday is going to become a member of the Roman Catholic Church. He is he is uh, going to back to Rome. He is leaving evangelicalism for not just a more like church centric uh, sort of evangelical experience. He's he's becoming a Roman Catholic, and this is what he said. Um, this is fascinating. When he, he's explaining why he's doing this, this is what he said, Mark Galley, in his, own, in his own words. I want to submit myself to something bigger than myself. One mm. thing I like about orthodoxy and Catholicism is that you have to do these things, whether you like it or not, whether you're in the mood or not. Sometimes whether you believe it or not, you just have to plow ahead. I want that. If it's left up to me, I am one lazy son of a bitch. I will not do anything (laughs) unless someone comes along and says, you need to do this. This is really important. This will shape your life. Come on, Galley, get off your butt. Right. It's what he's articulating. Fascinating. He's he's articulating the 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 a longing for the very thing that Tara Isabella Burton talks about in Strange Rights, which is a a a it's not a loss of self the the whole point is not to to lose yourself or a, even a selflessness but a self-giving a giving of self mm. um to something greater than yourself and he's articulating a longing for that in part because we live in a culture where it says the highest thing you can you can pursue is yourself. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, we're so like in you know, authenticity is a good thing. I mean, we're again, we're not sort of endorsing ritualism for its own sake, but we've gotten to this point where the need to be true to myself has you know, here's a guy who's approaching 70 and he's saying, I've been true to myself for so long that I'm just freaking worn out with myself. Yeah. And what I need is something beyond myself to tell me what really matters. Mm-hmm. But it's not limited to evangelicalism either. Like we're, we're seeing more and more of this longing, um, even from a more progressive side of 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 the country too. You had a really great example. Bruce. Yeah. So, um, fascinating. I mean, we've seen Mark Galley on the one hand an evangelical who's becoming Roman Catholic, but, um, Cyrus Habib, who is still, I think the Lieutenant governor of the state of Washington, 
announced several months ago that he is not running for re-election as a Democrat. And and, and the, okay, the kicker on this here is this: um, the governor of Washington, if Joe Biden wins the election, is likely going to be getting a cabinet level position. And so there's a good chance Cyrus Habib might become could become the governor of Washington. He just announced a few months ago that he's not running for re-election because he's going to become a Jesuit priest. <laughs> I mean, for those of us who are not Roman Catholics, I mean, that's like saying, I'm not going to run for re-election because I'm going to chop off my head instead. Yeah, it's like me saying, hey, I'm going to go to Wrigley Field and root for the Cubs. And as a Cardinals fan, I can think of something, nothing absolutely more... Uh, torturous and uh, defaming of what is right in this world. Yeah. Maybe that's an exaggeration. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but the reason Cyrus Habib <laughs> is saying this, he's saying he's compelled by, um, by beauty, truth, and goodness, and doesn't see that at all in the political arena that he's been, let's be honest, quite successful in. He's the lieutenant governor of the state of Washington. And he's saying, I've reached the point in my life where in the, the pursuit of beauty, truth, and goodness... I'm actually going to become a Jesuit priest because I think that provides a more meaningful way to live out my life than to function at a very high level. Uh, this is fascinating. He was he was interviewed on um, yeah. the Vox podcast by Ezra Klein uh, a couple months ago, and he said, "When I look at the people that surround me in politics and those who are even more successful than I am, I see a complete absence of joy in their lives." People who are at the height. I mean, we would look at these people as they're some of the most powerful people in the country. I love that that's his category. There's no joy in their lives. Well, and right. And what was amazing about this interview is like Ezra Klein just couldn't understand it. Like he's a sharp guy. Like I, I listen to his podcast fairly regularly. I think it's a fantastic, fair, even if I don't agree fully with everything he's saying, like he's super fair yeah. and sharp. And he was like, no, but wait, if what you're saying is your motivation for this is, is like to do greater good, how how does leaving a political system that like actually needs someone like you in it, how is that not like the place where you could have more influence and do a greater good? And he just keeps saying, he's like, well, why isn't it? And he's just like, he, yeah. he's, I think he's he holding up said, his assumptions. I, and I think what he said, and this is where, again, non-Catholics probably get a little bit confused, but the Jesuits are not like a cloistered order, right? Mm -hmm. So he's saying that as a Jesuit priest, you know, he might be teaching at Notre Dame. He's, he's not like going into the monastery to withdraw from the world for the next 50 years. He's saying, what do you talk? There's an incredible amount of good, public good uh, that can be done. Now, you know, so what, what what we're saying, Brad, is that we've got an example of both somebody leaving, let's be honest, secularism to join mm -hmm. the Catholic Church and somebody leaving evangelicalism to join the Catholic Church. Now, again, we, we could get ourselves in a lot of hot water if we don't qu clarify this. I'm not saying that becoming Catholic is the solution. I'm not becoming Roman Catholic. But it's the simplest way to conceive of a, pro of a solution to the problem of individualism. Return to the institutionalized Catholic church. Yes. Right. It, it, it is, it is the antithesis of individualism to, to give your entire self to an institution that is bigger than you, uh, globally, 
right? It's not limited to the United States or the, uh, a movement here. It's not even this continent. It's every continent on the planet, except maybe our Antarctica, depending on the time of year or whatever, um, right? It's, it's bigger than oneself historically. It's not recent, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's an historic institution that has, has actually learned some things along the way and can offer some wisdom intergenerationally. Yeah. It's bigger than oneself in terms of cause, community, purpose, mission. The reason why people are fleeing evangelicalism and or secularism, and sometimes they double down on individualism and go straight to fundamentalism, right? But what what is being sought out and what is being looked for is an a transcendent God-ordained institution through which we are able to find mm-hmm. and receive the dignity, value, and worth through the gospel, yeah. right? Like you, I'm not going to, I'm not joining the Catholic church. What I'm going to do is double down on as a pastor, building the institutional church and investing in that because that is the vehicle. It's the redeeming institution, right? Both the one that we need to redeem in a sense, um, away from an individualism, but also the one that redeems us if we give ourselves to it. Jesus loved his church and he died for his church. Jesus loves the church. And so we can't be say, we can't say that we're being faithful to the king if we don't love his bride. Following the king into his kingdom means apprenticing ourselves, becoming disciples, which means living a life in the context of the church. Have I ever shared with you my roundabout illustration? Your your roundabout? Okay. Um, I was watching this random video uh, on YouTube. I don't know why it popped up. What is this? What is the best intersection in the world? And I thought, I don't, I don't know why I clicked on what is the safest intersection in the world. Such a random video to watch. But I watched this YouTube video. <laughs> You're why Google makes money. Exactly. And I thought it was <laughs> going to be like one particular, like it's in the middle of like France or something. I don't know. But it, it was talking about the safest, the best type of intersection in the world. And w- what they said is this. Okay. You think about this. Have you ever sat on a you know, a major parkway where there's like four or five lanes of traffic each direction and you're making a left turn. And so you're sitting there waiting for the light to change, the arrow to change green so you can make a left turn and flying past you at like 70 miles an hour going the other direction, all these cars, right? And now you can put up a sign that says speed limit 35 miles an hour. But if there's five lanes of traffic going, people are going to be driving 70. And if you pull out left and somebody blows through that light, you're dead. Okay, that's just the physics of the way it works. But a roundabout is is almost impossible to have a serious injury in, because when you come into a roundabout, it doesn't matter what the speed limit is. You can only take that thing at about 16 miles an hour. And so it's impossible to get into a head on collision. The only thing you can do is sort of a low speed merge into one another and mess up some sheet metal, but nobody, everybody's walking home. Nobody, you know, everybody's walking away fine. Nobody's going to the hospital in an ambulance. Okay. So here's the thing. Everybody hates roundabouts. Like you got to go through one, one way or another to get into my house. Everybody hates roundabouts, but here's the thing. Roundabouts aren't better despite the fact that they're difficult they're actually better because they're difficult. Mm. And what we have lost by getting rid of the church and sort of self-discipling through our own preferences via technology and our smartphones is we have jettisoned the difficulty of relationships mm. in a covenant community. The church isn't necessary despite the fact that it's difficult 
it's necessary actually because it's difficult. It's the hmm. difficulty of like, yeah, it's, it's difficult. If I've got four small kids getting our kids to church on Sunday morning, let's be honest, I'm a pastor. My wife's a single mother of four on Sunday morning. It's hard work. But what do you think our kids take away from seeing mom and dad put in the effort to get to church every Sunday? I guess this matters. If we cancel every time something's hard, what we teach our kids is it doesn't matter. Another example, um, getting involved, like diving headfirst into the covenant community of the church. It's it, like you're going to interact with people that you would never have chosen to be friends with. Um, social media technology allows us to kind of select friends based on affinity. But when you mm. show up at church, you are instantly involved in the lives of people that you probably would never have chosen to be friends with. Conversations come up. You've got people with different backgrounds, different you know, education levels, different political views, and you've got to talk and you've got to work it out. Turns out love requires self-sacrifice for the sake of others. It happens mm. in the church, not despite the fact that it's difficult, but actually because it's difficult. When we jettison all of that and we are discipled by our preferences for talk radio, social media, what we are doing is we are preparing ourselves to live in, a, in, a, in, in such a way that we only do things if they work really well for us very quickly. Absolutely. Right. How many times? And that's not real life. <laughs> yeah. Right. I, dude, I, I won't ask. This is a rhetorical question. I don't want you to actually answer. Right. Uh, but how many times as a pastor has somebody come to you and said, I just don't feel fed by preaching or worship or music, et cetera, right? As if the purpose of this is to get you what you want, right? And don't get me wrong, people being satisfied and filled up through that, absolutely, it's a good thing, but we're, we're confusing cause and effect because James 3, right, says that if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pirate pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. And the context of this passage, right, immediately following, it's talking about how the tongue sets everything on fire, right? Like we can do so much damage with our words. But when you were talking earlier about like, we're not advocating for a ritualism, I was kind of like, well, maybe no, not a ritualism, but you know, when you actually say things that you don't fully believe, the tongue and you're saying so is a rudder that shapes your heart. Mm. And there is something to be. There's incredible seeing... value to saying words that are true, even when I don't quite believe them. Right. Yes. Because worship is descriptive, but it's also prescriptive and it shapes our affections in our hearts. And the very thing that you are fleeing, which is doing something because it's harder you don't fully believe is actually the thing that's keeping you from experiencing the fullness of joy that happens when our hearts are redirected to God and not ourselves and our individualism. And that will only happen if we give ourselves wholly over to, like we've been talking about the church as God's, as Jesus's bride. It's also the, Jesus's very manifested embodied presence on earth until he returns. If you want to be with Jesus, but you don't want to be with his church, you don't really want to be with Jesus. Amen. Let me let me finish with this. Um, I love this as a definition of discipleship. Um, I'm going to blow my own mind by quoting um, a Bible verse out of the message. But Eugene Peterson's 
paraphrase of the Bible, which is called the message. Sometimes it's really great. This is what he, this is how he paraphrases the words of Jesus that, that will be familiar to you. He says this, Matthew 11, 20 through 30. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me and get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll mm. show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Man. Thanks so much for joining us. If you want to check out some of the resources we mentioned in this episode, head on over to our website, kingandkingdom.community. We've got links to those there. And please be sure to subscribe to our podcast if you haven't already, because next week we're going to be talking with author and journalist David French about the polarization in our country and what the church can do about it. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm Bryce Hales with Brad Edwards. Our theme music was recorded by Kevin McLeod and used under a Creative Commons license from filmmusic.io. And our logo was designed by Danny Rankin. We'll be back next week helping you navigate life in a post-Christian and post-pandemic world right here on Everything Just Changed.